Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Everybody, this episode of Working Dog Radio is brought to you in part by our friends at Ray Allen Manufacturing. Everything you need for dogs, whether it's working dogs, pet dogs, sport, anything, rayallen.com, the best in the business. Uh, Check them out. We got a discount code, Working Dog Radio, for 10% off. Another one of our favorite partnerships is with the one and only dog trip. These guys are producing some amazing tools in the dog training world. Everything from e-collars, GPS tracking, ball training, it was electronics, and it goes on dogs. Go to dog trip. They're revolutionizing the way you communicate with your dog. Hit them up at dogtrip.com. Use the discount code WDR10 for 10% off a single item over 200 bucks. The biggest and baddest conference in canine anywhere in the United States is HITS. Every year, each and every year, hundreds and hundreds of vendors, thousands of attendees, the best instructors around. It got moved because of COVID. Um, It's going to be July 7th through the 9th in 2021. Check it out. Hits, letter K number nine dot net to get signed up. You can't go wrong. Hits K nine dot net. Let's see you there next year. Yeah. Speaking of some guys that are going to be there next year, the kinetic dog food guys, fueling a working dog can be tough, but they need high quality food to give them the energy and the nutrients that require they, that they require for the work that we ask them to do. Kinetic dog food is a great balance of healthy meats and grains and is specifically made for working and sporting dogs. Be sure to hit them up at kineticdogfood.com. Easily, hands down, the best product we've ever represented on this podcast is Quick Derm by Vet Care. Ted and I use it in the kennel on our dogs when they get goofy injuries and ourselves when we also get goofy in- injuries. They have a discount code for us, 10WDR for 10% off your first order. Check them out at vetcare.us. All right, everybody, Working Dog Radio, we are back uh, on Zoom, hopefully not getting it deleted this time and uh, that the episode yeah. gets... <laughs> used um so that we can actually have our first one that you can see where there's uh ted and i and our guests with us uh speaking of ted from tulsa oklahoma is the hairy one ted summers what's up right (laughs) not a lot it's uh unseasonably warm today i got a handler school i'm on third day of a six-week handler school today Me too. (laughs) uh so thankfully he's an experienced handler so it's not that big of a deal um and he understands leash control and leash management and the dog's kind of a dick but you know, I mean, he's an Alanois, so it is what it is. Dual purpose dog. He's going up to the, uh, he's going to be in that central Indiana canine group um, up there with Kyle Schaefer and those guys. So, um, cool. Yeah, those guys are good. Yeah, he's got a nice dog. Um, I'm going to, he's going to go home for Christmas and then he's going to come back after the first year. He's actually going to be at our HRD in January in Muskogee because uh, that's right towards the end of his school. And I'm just making him go with me. So that'll be his like graduation week with me. So, uh, yeah. How, what have you been up to? Um, I'm also in day three of a handler school. I have, um, two guys uh, there. One's an experienced hand. I have three handlers. One's experienced. This is his third dog. Um, the other two are green. The, the one is replacing a handler that got fired from his job. Mm-hmm. And it's a dog that I, uh, trained three years ago. I think his name is buddy. Um, good dog. So, Buddy's been on the street, got street bites, working, rock and rolling, certified three times now in, in Ohio. And then the handler comes and he's left-handed. Oh. <laughs> and the, oh, the yeah. previous handler's been right-handed the whole time. <laughs> so, yeah. So yesterday, this the third handler, the other green one, started. He couldn't be there. Or he wasn't there on Monday. I can't remember. But he's left-handed. 
also oh, man and the dog that i pre-trained for him is ready to certify right now with a right-handed handler <clears throat> so one of my handlers is left-handed and shoots right or mm-hmm. vice versa i don't remember what it is but i'm like hold on a second and I'm like, this is like shaving in the mirror. Like, what side do you want him to heal on? Like, where's your firearm? And I'm like, what? what? So, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. A lot of left-handed guys, man, I notice, uh, well, like, they're left-handed, but they shoot a rifle right-handed. And uh, because of the dominant way they're dominant eyes sometimes, and then yep. they can shoot a pistol left-handed. And then if you play softball, they're batting right-handed. And it's like, what the fuck's going on up here, man? Yeah. With, uh, the, with the head, so... My um, what do we got today? I'm super excited about this episode. Um, we have uh, the executive director for uh, USPCA, uh, Don Slavic. Uh, for those that don't know, USPCA is the largest um, nationally recognized certifying agency or body um, in the country. Uh, large, you know, well-respected standard, been around forever. I'll let him tell the whole story. But Don, how are you? I'm good. And you? We're doing well, rock and rolling, training dogs and handlers and trying not to get bit, <laughs> which is what I seem to do every day. So, <laughs> so Don, typically what we like to do, and I know you listen and everything, is go through a little bit of your history, kind of the canine story that led us up to today. Okay. Um, I came from the city of St. Paul, handler, trainer, uh, 21 years there. I retired, uh, started expert, uh, doing some expert witness testimony. Um, about four years into that, ATF called me and asked if I would like to uh, come and train for them. So uh, eight years later, uh, training for bomb dogs for ATF for a variety of people from their uh, special agents to uh, state, city, state, and local at that time, and then for foreign countries. And then after that, I went into the State Department and worked for two years over in Iraq, supervising the canines for the State Department. Wow. That's, so <clears throat> real quick, and we talked about this, you and I, before, but when I started at the police department was May of 1996, May 6th, we got hired. Uh, there was six or seven of us, seven, and um, all but one of us had been to the academy. So they had us at the police department, like learning the detective bureau and the vice unit and all this other stuff. But we also had the uh, canine, uh, our canine unit was a really big involved in USPCA. And they, as it turns out, was whole, were holding the uh, national event. And um, it was, I think, May. I think we like got hired on the 6th. I, I think we were, they get, we got assigned to help them like two weeks later and you show um, up as a new dog at a national event or yeah. a new dude, you're like i have i look i just work I, here i don't know what's going yeah, on yeah i don't know i i got a <laughs> i got a couple great stories but um and i remember hanging out with the canine guys and they were really you know talking all the brotherhood stuff and really explaining what it's meant to be in the in that law enforcement and in that city and everything and then um there were guys from all over the country there. I, I, it was so cool. And I, of course, all I was was just a, an errand boy running around helping out. But I got to do some uh, de- some decoy work, of course, you know. So this idiot kid, 26-year-old kid um, in a bite hold, suit. In a, hold this. <laughs> yeah, in a men's room in a, in a park um, in the city. And that was my first introduction to St. Paul, Minnesota, canine unit. And I got to tell you, I was infatuated. Like, I'm, 
the the guy running the scenario that I was helping, um, John Skalski was a hardcore dude from Detroit. Um, and you know, every guy in Detroit canine had shot a bunch of people. Like it's, it was a wild west for those guys. And even Skalski was like, those guys are awesome. The same all dudes. <laughs> and, uh, so I always remember that. And I remember when like the TV, they were on that TV show and they had all that going out. And I, I loved watching the St. Paul guys work and they were serious about their business, even though we were having a lot of fun. Um, but here's my quick little funny story. So I got Gary, who was a handler then, the senior handler. I got his cruiser, and it was an old um, one of those Chevy Caprices, the big, huge ones with like the big bucket trunk and all that stuff. And I that was giving me the car to drive back and forth. So I'm out there, and some guy from one of the agencies didn't have a car, and we were doing pursuits and bailout stuff. So I let him use Gary's car, and they're driving around this field in this this place like an idiots and the guy crashes the cruiser into some bleachers dents the whole back left quarter panel of the thing i'm like shit i i don't know what to do so there is a video of me and another guy with a pr24 in the trunk smashing the dent i have two weeks on the job <laughs> smashing the dent out of this car and i don't know look pretty good i go back to the to the, ho the host hotel at the end of the day gary here's your keys whoop Toss him the keys. Peace, brother. I'll see you tomorrow. And about a week after the conference, he's like, what the hell happened to my car? Somebody hit my car. I'm like, sorry, I don't know what happened, buddy. <laughs> and then, then the video comes out of me bashing the trunk and everything. He's like, really? Hmm. Didn't know. Didn't know anything, huh? <laughs> so, and I think, Don, you were at that event, were you? I was, I was, I was, I probably was at the last, in the last tenure of my uh, presidency as a president of the USPCA. And I believe that was the one where San Francisco PD or Sheriff's Department was there and they were repelling off the side of a building and showing how that worked. And I thought, uh, I think those are great memories. I smiling well here mm -hmm. at listening to your, to your tale because that happened frequently you know, there's a lot of things going on, and unfortunately, the newest people they get the best jobs, and uh, and but they also could turn out to be the best trainers. I can see that happen here. Yeah, you know, it was um, it was interesting too. And what I really liked was the nighttime stuff at the uh, at the conference. I was like, guys, I'm gonna have to get a room. Like you, these some dude from the south brought up some real moonshine. And just annihilated these northern boys <laughs> with that stuff. Uh, it was it was pretty interesting. I have to say I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, of course, <laughs> of course not. So let's go back when you were uh, when you were in St. Paul as a handler. How many dogs did you handle? Um, probably six or seven. Jeez. Um, all dual purpose. Uh, yes. Tell. Let's go. Pick a few. I like to when guy have guys that have been on with a lot of dogs. Pick a few, talk about them. Tell me what you really liked and what you didn't like about the dogs. If you could um, kind of combine and make yeah. a perfect one. Uh, we in back in those days, uh, the head trainer uh, they used to sample different breeds, and I had uh, uh, given my dog away to another handler from outside the city because they had an accident happen during training. 
and uh, he needed a dog, and so we, he, he got my dog. So I got a Rottweiler. And um, the Rottweiler was different in that all the usual things that you look for in a dog is the ears moving and the tail going and all of those things. It was a whole different, uh, a whole different thought process and, and, and how that dog was going to start communicating with me and tell me he was okay. But uh, other than that, we had uh, a variety of dogs. So uh, unfortunately, except for that dog, they were all shepherds. We, we were shepherd people back in those days. Um, in the early days, uh, it was, um, what are we supposed to do with this dog kind of a thing? You know, what, what happens? I mean, in the police department, they were, that's the, that was the, the thought. So how do we use these dogs? So it was a learning process for us and for them. And we used our dogs. Um, for, I had a bomb dog and I had a narcotic dog. And then I actually had a single purpose dog right at the end, uh, Labrador, when I was a head trainer. And uh, it was much easier to, to maintain a single purpose dog. And it worked really well. Um, but we were very progressive. We tried many different breeds while we were there and to see if we could make other breeds work for us, just like the shepherds did. That seems to be like a, a current thing now. And, you know, there's a, and it's an admirable thing because we have those people that are doing um, the, uh, the shelter to, to police dog programs where they're doing single purpose pit bulls and some other stuff. And inevitably I'm always get questions at Torchlight for people that want um, what I would consider an off breed, not a Dutchie, not a Malinois, not a German shepherd. And I'm always like, oh, I mean, if you can find one, like, let me know and I'll take a look at it. But I mean, inevitably, it just seems like the pool of those dogs is, is exceptionally small these days. Um, occasionally, I'm trying to remember, Eric, have we seen one in any HRDs that were in one of those off breeds that I mean, just not one of those three, not an off breed, just not a, one of the three that was a super nice worker. I don't not that I can think of. No, we, the closest we've had is a, um, a couple of Tavarian mixes, you know, you could see it in them. Um, I think, I think there was actually one in Utah that I was like, that's, that dog's a turf. And they're like, what is that? And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's right. That dude had that, the, the, I called him fuzzy. Yeah. I don't remember what the dog's name is. I just called the dog fuzzy. Yeah. He's along here, but I mean, it has, when has, I mean, it sounds like it's coming back around again done for people that are like oh i want to use this or i want to i had a handler who now in fact they just found a bunch of drugs last week um he has a german shepherd now but he asked for a uh a giant snoucher and i just said no we did one, <laughs> we yeah, did I, one of those we did one of those how did it work out and when was uh, it when oh a yeah. long time ago yeah. um probably in the 80s uh wow it came as a special request and so we took it on and uh, there was some history about giant snowers in police work, and so we thought we'd take a look at it, and it worked out pretty well. Uh, it was a smaller uh, law enforcement agency, and uh, he, it was, they just clicked. The handler and the dog clicked, and they, were, they had a great, uh, a great time over the years, uh, you know, doing things with the dog. So we did a flat coat retriever one time. I don't know what we would do that one again. It was a good dog, but it was it's one of those dogs that was different. I uh, I was at a local seminar here in Oklahoma about two or three years ago, and all the handlers are out working drugs, right? And this dude has this black lab, 
and he's from a tiny town like way out south oklahoma somewhere and i'm like oh dog did decent work right and there's a bunch of state evaluators standing there, a bunch of state um, guys and i'm like okay whatever so we get ready to do apprehension work and he gets this dog out and i kind of stand there and look at him and hagner's with me and i'm like what are you doing like we're getting ready to do apprehension work he's like oh i know i was like and sure as shit that he didn't it wasn't very good but i mean that dog would bite you (laughs) that's the weirdest it was the only time i've ever seen or heard of a dual purpose lab black lab i can't remember where the dude is from but it was somewhere down south like south of norman like towards texas border off i-35 but i mean he would bite but i was i was shocked i was like wow and so that somebody's like did you pick the dog and he was like no we bought it from a vendor they sold it as a dual purpose lab right Okay. You don't hear that. You don't hear that very often. Uh, no, no, you don't. <laughs> it's the only time I've ever seen it. So uh, it was an interesting day, to say the least. That dog was defensive as shit, like super yeah. defensive. <laughs> he would bite you for sure. But- so you're the first person we've had on that, that worked a Roddy that has been on the show. Um, I'm just curious as to like, what did he bring that you really liked? Um, he was... I think typical of the breed, he was in tracking, he was a footstep after footstep kind of sniffer. So as the, uh, we tightened up the, the, uh, the, the area and with police squads and things like that, we would flush this dog out and it would be a half an hour later before we reached <laughs> where the police vehicles were because he was very methodical, very good. There's no doubt about it. He was very good. Um, he, uh, he did well in everything, and I. He was the first dog that I, I when I we trained him to be not aggressive to gunfire. So uh, he was super relaxed uh, all the time. He when he barked though, he had a a weight shift, you know, in the back of the car that would make the that would rock the car, you know. He just like one side to the other, and he uh, sounds his his bark is a little bit deeper, uh, it seemed, and so. He did well. We did a lot of building searches, a lot of tracks with him. So it was good. So that's funny. I have a Malinois right now, the one of those going to the left-handed guy that I posted a video of him on Instagram today. He's another one. It's we'll we'll get to you. We're gonna find guys. It's just gonna take a little bit. Because yeah. he's whoop, whoop, whoop. That dog's never skipped a piece of food. And I'm at I think I'm at 30 paces right now in between and he never misses ever it's crazy we had there was a rottweiler there's been several in psa that i was decoying at a trial and we're doing a flea bite now that i was gonna have to slow down because i was gonna run out of field for him to catch up to me i'm normally running at the speed that i need for a malinois and i'm like where is this dog and i'm looking over my shoulder i'm like where is he and he's coming that he eventually gets there and then having to drive him was a nightmare i thought i was gonna need shoulder surgery after that it was <laughs> that dog weighed he damn near weighed as much as i did <laughs> it was a big, big old dogs. boy yeah for big sure dogs. so after um saint paul uh mm-hmm. you then head over to the atf correct yes and what year was that uh 2004 i think it was so that had to be pretty early on in their program right oh no no they have they've had dogs they had dogs for a while um when I got there, I mean, the fir- my first day, I was uh, sent to Albuquerque to help test agents. And then we moved around a lot. I mean, I had a bag ready to go all the time. And it was a, it was a great experience because they are, 
they have some pretty interesting ways about how they introduce explosive odor that I was not used to. Um, and they, they handle themselves a lot. They, they have a system where they test dogs that I, I like a lot, but I, most people can't afford to do that, is that we'll test the dog, then bring them back, sit around for a week. They'll take, there's people there that'll take them for walks. It's really nice. They, they're environmentally conditioning them all the time. And then another handler, another, I'm sorry, another trainer will come in, test that dog and in, on a different area. And then he'll go back inside and they'll walk that dog. And then a third trainer will come in and, and test them in a different environment. And if, if any trainer can, can say that's it, he's done during the process. And if all three trainers pass him, then he moves into a school. Wow. So we were we were doing a lot of agents. That was back when um, the government was supporting uh, city, state, and local with classes out at ATF. Um, there was a canine initiative, and uh, so the people were being brought in, and we were run them through a series. It was two weeks to begin with, and they were they were offered all this training for free, and uh, so they would come in, and we take them all over the place, and it was good. It was really good. So what method were they using to uh, introduce explosives at that time? Um, they just, it was just a sniff. So some, there's a few people that still that do that now that I've ran across. So in other words, they have a little sniffer tin. They put, they put a product, it's usually smokeless powder or black powder. And they just put it there and they tap, they might tap the can or whatever. But the, if the dog comes over and sniffs, he gets a couple of kibble. And after two or three times, the dog gets the idea. There's no commands. There's nothing. He's just sniffing. And they present they present the can. And then they start moving it all around. Um, they will put a gallon can out and set it in corners. And they'll pretty, they don't teach the sit command at all back then. Right. And so they, they just, it was a, a little poke in the rear. You know, once they knew the odor, then it was all about fixing the sit. And you, you could put a handful of food in front of their mouth give them a little poke and they'd sit, you open your hand, they fed, they get it right away. So when you find the odor, you go in to sit, you get fed. So they were big on, on um, things such as um, a bridge command. They used wow. that, they were using that all the time. That was really, that's my, was my first experience with using a bridge command or some command like that. And that was really good. Interesting. Were they doing like a marker per se, or it was just a plus B equals C. You put your no. hand, your nose in there, you no. smell that food. They had a bridge command, which was good. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and so um, that, and then that's what they, that's how they translated it over. So, I mean, we, we it's where I really learned how to uh, take a dog and shape that dog without saying anything to him just by what happened. If the dog moved during the set, as I was bringing the food forward, I stopped my movement which caused the dog to, okay, so my movement caused my food to stop. So I'm going back, he, they'd go right back into the sit, then I would continue on. And it, would, it worked pretty well. It, it's good. it was a good system. Interesting. I had a, a dog that I never intended to sell. Uh, it was a little Dutch Shepherd named Stiletto. And uh, she had no, she still to this day, has no obedience um, sit. Um, actually, I think they did because they certified nationally. So she had to pass the obedience portion. But um, forever she went to a, a county or to a, a place where the district attorney was like super whatever uh, worried about like queuing and he, apparently he'd had a run in with an attorney a defense attorney that actually knew what they were doing 
So I had this dog that as a project, I, she was living in my house and I taught her to find odor. I taught her to find narcotics and she had no obedience scent command. The only time she would sit is if she found odor. And I did it kind of that way. And we ended up selling her and they called us back and they were like, how the hell did you do this? And I'm like, I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, well, I waited for her to sit and then we paid her and then I marked her because I used the clicker and you know it was a it was an interesting project on mine because i just wanted to see i was like i wonder if i can get her to do it without because you know i mean teach them to sit and then i don't ever say it but then i wait for them to solicit on a sit and then we pay and we shave the behavior and everything else but it was interesting and when the handler took her back out to the district attorney's office or to the prosecutor's guy at the, the prosecutors they were like well we want to see her work. So they watched her work and they were like well how did he do it and, they're, and he's like i have no idea uh, and they ask and i was like i was you know, I kind of explained it to him just like you did. And they said, well, that's, can you do more? I'm like, well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was like a, a, a project on mine. I mean, we don't need to do it, but we can. <laughs> so they were super impressed that I didn't have to tell her to sit. And I'm like, well, we don't ever tell them to sit one on the road. So it's not different. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear that they do that as well. So a lot of guys go from uh, like, especially around the DC Metro area will be a canine handlers and get recruited to leave their departments either through retirement or whatever and go train dogs for secret service or maybe ATF or somebody else. None of them end up, you know, going for 25, 30 years. Nobody goes that long. And usually it's because it's not as glamorous. It's more monotonous than they thought it would be. Um, or it's just, you know, it's, it can be pretty tough, you know, hours wise and, and, and a kind of a, um, what I want to say, like a conveyor belt, you know, which Ted and our kennel is the same way. Next dog, next dog, next dog. Did you find it that way? Um, actually, no. So there it's, you were assigned to a class. So um, during the class, you are responsible seven days a week because if, if there's a feeding, you're feeding the dog. His, uh, he gets fed by you know, the number of successes they have. And they're usually right on tune with that. Um, they had a, I did not, and so the, the agency also was involved in, in that at that time. Um, so that was, uh, they and they trained the same way. Uh, they, they were back and forth between the uh, ATF and, and, the, and the CIA were back and forth, and they, they do similar training. I don't know exactly what they do now, but at that time, they were. it was not uncommon to see them show up at the ATF, or I would go down to the uh, CIA training area and work down there, so it was pretty good. Yeah, that, that would be pretty, pretty neat. So when you went over to Iraq, were you working for a company as a private contractor or was it just straight for the government or what was it? Oh, straight for, I was a State Department employee. Oh, they, you did say that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, is that a GS job? Yes. Okay. Not bad. Pretty good. Did you, uh, what did you think of Iraq? What, what were we doing um, with the dogs there? Well, it, it's not fair to, for me to comment and say it was really okay because a lot of people were, you know, fought over there but for in the embassies is where i stayed so i was in the baghdad embassy and uh, i would travel to different places in the country um and it wasn't bad it was uh in, you know the baghdad embassy is the biggest embassy in the world i think so uh it was you know i had my own room you know they fed you good i, I did a, I, I worked a lot of hours every day and uh for 60 days there and 60 days home so it worked out pretty well a lot of dogs. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Um, what year was that? That was 2015, and I, I was over in 2017. Okay. 
So going back to your time at um, at St. Paul, you're in there at USPCA. How like what's a where does that, how far back does that relationship go with St. Paul and USPCA? Um, it was there when I started. So I started a long time ago. And uh, we are, St. Paul at that time was directly related backwards towards Washington, D.C. So Washington, D.C. trained a Minneapolis trainer. And the Minneapolis trainers trained a St. Paul trainer. And that's how we were all functioning back in those days. So back then, again, it was um, the USPCA had... um, started about four years earlier as when they joined everybody joined up and it became the USPCA of course at that time I did not even know that and so we uh, we were there I mean we trained we tested USPCA we did a lot of that um, but basically we were you know just doing uh, street scenarios for the most part it's funny you say that about DC because my agency Canton is tied back to DC our first trainer back in 1985 was a guy named Dave Haskins and yeah he uh I think he did class number one and class number two and then trained up a guy named Rick Cook who was one of the handlers to be the the first city trainer and we actually named a building after him out at our field I remember Rick too yeah oh yeah it's uh and when I mentioned Gary you probably knew Gary half too um A wiener, they called him for a lot of reasons. But uh, anyways, um, that's crazy how that worked. D.C., I I think they said back in the day that D.C. had like upwards of like 100 dogs or something crazy. They had had a lot of dogs. I remember in 1978 going to the national event there and uh, uh, was totally impressed with the things that a D.C. dog handlers could do with their dogs. Um, it was it was unreal for me as a new person to be able to see that, and it was it was something to see, inspiring actually. Yeah, the guys love them. They they the old time guys talk about them all the time. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and take a break now um, for you on Patreon. Stick around. We're coming right back for you guys listening everywhere else on YouTube or whatever. Don't skip through the commercials, please. We have a lot of great sponsors um, in there. And we come back. We are going to dive into USPCA kind of a little bit of the past and kind of where we see USPCA's role going forward in the future. Um, We'll be right back. All right, guys, one of our best sponsors, one of our oldest sponsors are the Perkinsons down in Harmony, North Carolina at Highland Canine. We have a ton of people going down there for their handler schools, their trainer schools, their full on, um, dog training schools where you learn police dogs, pet dogs, all aspects of it. They have amazing dogs for sale, classes for police, classes for police supervisors, pretty much a full gamut of anything you need in the dog world. Highland Canine definitely is the place to go check it out. Uh, there, I, I can't tell you enough about how great these people are. Everybody I know that's been there for their training say it is no joke. Um, check them out tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com get your butt down there North Carolina man and learn speaking of full service it's no secret that we love the guys up in Colorado Springs at Ray Allen Canine Equipment we use their products every single day their mission statement says it all to be a world leader in the quality and innovation of professional canine equipment for police military Schutzen ring sport to exceed our customers expectations to deliver on time every time at a fair price 
we full heartedly believe that they have that they are true to that statement since it's our go-to one-stop shop for everything canine they literally have everything there except the damn dog you can get in the car but they have inserts they have hot poppers they have e-collars they have leashes they have regular collars harnesses they have muzzles they have some of the working dog draggers muzzles that end up starting their life in my living room so be sure to check them out, rayallen.com, and use the discount code WORKINGDOGRADIO, written all the way out, for 10% off. We really are so lucky and happy to be partners with uh, the guys down at Kinetic Dog Food. Um, the stuff that those guys are doing, man, it, it's so good. The ingredients that they have, we had them on a podcast. Uh, it was eye-opening. Listen to them talk about... Uh, the goofy stuff that goes into dog foods and and in the business they are honest they are great people kinetic dog food um they will drop ship you a pallet if that's your thing if you got that many dogs they'll drop ship you a pallet anywhere you need it kineticdogfood.com best in in the industry and uh, definitely a personal favorite of working dog radio kineticdogfood.com yeah and if you're out on the east side of the country uh, be sure to hit up Southern Coast Canine. They're a reputable canine kennel that does dog sales and training services. Located in sunny New Smyrna, Florida, Southern Coast Canine provides services worldwide from purchasing your next single or dual purpose working dog to handler courses and seminars. Southern Coast is a great resource to check them out. You know, the Heisers run a great ship down there, and obviously the weather's nice. So if you live in a part of the country where it sucks half the time, weather-wise, that's where you go in the wintertime. That's how you get your admin, send them down, get to them get them to send you down there in, in the wintertime when it's nice and sunny. Uh, they do a fantastic job with trainers courses, decoy schools, uh, and handler courses for green dogs and finished dogs and retreads too. So be sure to hit them up at Southern Coast Canine, that's letter K number nine.com and get scheduled or go find you a dog. Dogtra. Uh, we post on our social media all the time, Ted and I using Dogtra. Uh, I, I love everything about them. Uh, I think the Dogster 1900S is the gold standard for police canine. Um, it is a perfect collar. The remote size is perfect. Um, you got that. You can do the um, hands-free device if you want. Uh, their ball popper, their Dogster YS 600 bark collar. I've got a drawer full of those at the kennel. Um, I want my place nice and quiet. The uh, bark collars solve a lot of the thrashing in cars. If you got that dog that spins up at training in the back of the car, get yourself a dog show YS 600 collar. One of our biggest sponsors, one of our biggest friends, big supporters of the podcast, dogtra.com. Uh, they do have a discount code too for us is WDR10 for 10% off a single item over $200. Don't mess around. Don't wait. Dogtra.com. Excellent. So we'll issue or issue. We'll give it a break here. You want to come? You want to bring it back? You want me to? Go ahead. You can do. Okay. <clears throat> and we'll edit this after the fact. Oh. <clears throat> so the screen is bright. Woof. <clears throat> All right, we're back after the break. Working Dog Radio broadcasting the bite. We are here with the executive director from USPCA, Don Slavic. We've been talking about um, him handling a Rottweiler, which I didn't know. And uh, I'm sure there's a dude um, that follows us on Instagram and Facebook that is a Roddy breeder than Illinois that is just going to be ecstatic to hear this. <laughs> um, he has been trying 
for years to get me to buy one of his Rottweilers. I'm like, dude, nobody's going to buy one from the police departments. So like the bids that come in say it's got to be a herder, but he's going to be like, see? So um, he's going to be ecstatic. His name's Glenn. Uh, super nice guy. Um, and then uh, we've also talked about the ATF and going to Iraq. So, you know, we talked right before the break a little bit about um, the relationship with USPCA and how that started. Um, so, when did you sort of work into an advisory role or to like a leadership role in USPCA? Um, it started in, uh, in the grassroots more or less. It started with as a presidency in the local region. USPCA is made up of many regions and then there's a national office. So I started there. Uh, well, I don't even remember the year, but uh, you know, that put me on the executive committee. And so then I started uh, attending uh, meetings where there was decision-making available and, and that was interesting. And then I, I, I became national secretary and then national president. And then I kind of went and did my thing with uh, ATF and State Department. And then I just went into retirement. And then their opportunity came up to be the executive director and I decided to put in for it and I got it. Yeah, and kind of like Eric, after you retire, you end up working more. Yes. <laughs> Just when I thought I was out. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. Uh, so um, for those listening, USPCA is the oldest and the largest um, certifying body um, in the country. So talk a little bit about uh, the mission and why USPCA is an entity. Um. It, it all started back in August of 19. We're in our 50th year, right? We're, st we're in Damn. our 50th year now. We're going to be wow. 50 years old in August of next year. Um, but it started when two organizations got together. So there was, there was only a couple of organizations back in those days. And uh, this is what I was told. I was not there then. But uh, they joined together and they started this, this thing going. Now, I happen to see... Not too long ago, uh, our first judges, our first evaluators were from AKC. And so uh, that went for a couple of years until we got ourselves going. And then we developed our own judges and doing different things. And I think basically we were, uh, it was an interesting time because we went to a lot of seminars. We, we learned from people. Um, it was a good time for handlers to just kind of get an idea of what everybody else was doing around the country and, and that we went from there. And then so the system now is set up where we judge. I think it's an opportunity for a person to see what other people do um, and what things you don't want to do with your dog you know, by looking at other people, evaluating. So it's a nice system. Uh, people... Uh, criticize us a little bit for the comp competition part of it. Um, and so it's back and forth about that. Competition is is good in, it, in that it helps you or gives you, charges you to get your dog to be a better dog and you a better person as a handler. So that that's the way we look at it. It's up to people that, you know, if they like it or they don't like it. Um, it's all, it's just strictly up to them. So one of the things that might be, um, a bit of a misnomer people don't understand is that in, in US, USPCA to get certified, you know, your national certification, you don't actually have to compete. That it's completely separate. And I think maybe people don't understand that. Oh, yes. You, you, certification is a certification, whether you're looking to do anything like competing or whatever, it doesn't make any difference. You're correct. It's, 
it's um, it's just going there and watching how people what seeing what handlers can do with their dogs and you think I'd like to do that with my dog and that's what's important about it is understanding the possibilities by looking at people who have are a little more veteran a little more practiced uh, looking at trainers listening to trainers talk um, it works out pretty well do you all the times that you had to certify or if you competed or anything is there any effed up story of yours you're like oh shit he's never done that before well i think that happens in every canine person's <laughs> career <laughs> i mean you know uh, oh, yeah. i guess i i guess you know you could just you could just we used to have america's most wanted there all the time in for a while and you you get out there and you get excited about what you were doing and then you you give the wrong command and you think, how could I give him the wrong command? So the dog, he doesn't know what's going on. And he's, he just doesn't come back. Or he doesn't go out because he's confused because you just changed something by giving the wrong command. So it, it, there's probably many times where I would have liked to have had a do-over, I guess you could say. Um, but that just makes me better down the road. So that's the way I look at it. That's an interesting thing because when, you know, I'm a, I'm a trial decoy for PSA and um, PSA is an extremely difficult sport and I see people fail all the damn time in that sport and, you know, some of these people are my friends, guys down in Texas um, and there was a guy that, that was in a try. I distinctly remember the dog is a big ass German shepherd named Sarge um, and, the handler i love him to death he uh several twice in the twos three times actually in the twos he gave the wrong command the dog did the correct behavior and i was kind of standing next to him like while we're standing there like the dog's doing what he's supposed to do and i'm like fuck i'm glad the dog's smarter than you are because he he's seen this enough to know he's supposed to do what he's like he's he understands what he's supposed to do and he's like oh god i know but that yeah i've seen that multiple times and you know and PSA if you do that I mean if, if you have to give a second command it's you know you get popped for it so or if you give the wrong command and the dog does the correct behavior per the command you're like well uh, so it's an interesting it's interesting to watch um, handlers under pressure which is something interesting when we do with HRD um, you know we talk about guys that that perform really really well in sterile environments um, one of the scenarios we do in HRD we call fuck it Stalin and um, it is designed to force a decision-making process um, under some gram conditions, and then we make them do a bunch of cardio. So their heart rates are up, and pretty much, uh, you know, in the debrief, we always tell them, like, you know, for every every beat over resting your heart rate goes, your IQ drops by two. <laughs> so once you get up around 110, you're in the negative, and like decision-making skills go out the window. And under normal circumstances, like I just say, if I do this, what would you do? They're like, oh, this is what I do. I'm like, okay. And then they do it, and they do exactly the, the – 20 minutes later, they do the exact opposite. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Why would you do that? And they're like, I, I mean, Eric, tell the story how we named that. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, <laughs> we were in Colorado, and um, the scenario, you know, we give a description, and there's things going on in the scenario, and the first couple guys seem to remember the information. But as we get to number four, five, six, seven, whatever, they're over there BSing and talking, and they forget. And they come up, and the the one guy didn't know if he should send his dog or not. He, he literally goes, 
fuck it, Stalin, and shrugged his shoulders and sent the dog, and off he went. And Ray and I were standing there. We go, that's the name of the scenario. <laughs> Thank you. <I'm> waiting, <laughs> trying to figure it out. So before we get into like some of the legal stuff about um, the importance of like a, a USPCA and uh, kind of where we're going in the future with it, talk about um, for the folks that don't know about like how the regions are set up and if if you join USPCA in your region, kind of what you're looking at, what what is offered an ability for you to take advantage of. Um, sure. Each region is its own entity. It's like like uh, like a state in the United States. And they have their own financials. They do everything on their own. They, they have their own. I should say this right up front. If you have a department and you're listening and you do not have a foundation or something supporting you, you should get one. Uh, it's, it is a great thing. It is not abused. It's a good tool for you to, to get some money into your program in your police departments. But the, the regions are all like that. They all are foundations. They all have some kind of a a system set up where that they do fundraising and things like that for themselves. And they provide their own training sometimes because they are unique in an, or, in an organization that's really large. It's hard to nail down what each area or individual handlers need, but the regions are there. They see their handlers all the time. So we, or they will do those kinds of things. And on the national level, we would provide national kind of uh, exercises things like that but you they have all of the all of the events so certification is um well i guess for lack of a better term it's a way for the courts to determine that somebody's looked at you and and you've been deemed that you can do what you can find drugs or you can go out and track you can do those things and then after that it's up to the courts and other attorneys to figure out whether or not you really did it um so that's we provide this these certifications the regions provide we have, you have, it's a process. You can't, you can't be the certifying official without, a, without many, many judging or evaluating uh, things and tests and you have to be elevated up over the years. So it's a process. And so you go in and you look. And I think what the difference um, between uh, the U for us as USPCA is that our tests are not hard. I think that if you look at people who do uh, deployment type tactics and or actual deployments and have to you know do different things like narcotic searches, those narcotic searches are extremely more difficult than our test would be. But it's and so that's the way we look at it. Uh, it's it's a way that you can get an idea of what you have and then you go on from there. But that's what the regions do. They have they do seminars. They do their own. Uh, uh, testing. Uh, now there's a great big test next month already, and I can't believe we're actually going to do one in a region in a region in Minnesota where I'm from. So it's it's fun. It, it's a fun thing. You get to meet. They have meetings. They have, uh, you know, like a Christmas party or whatever. You know, things like that. It's it's good. So, um, and if you're, uh, <clears throat> we talked about it earlier with a national seminar, and I think some people think when they think USPCA, they think just the national certification. But I can tell you from, because since I was at Canton, we had two national uh, seminars we hosted there. And if you're like, oh, you're, what do we do? Just go there and, and talk about out and recall and uh, whatever. But I can tell you at the national seminars that I was at, dude, we they were rappelling off the buildings through elevator shafts. I told you we crashed a car during a, a ridiculous high-speed pursuit scenario. 
uh, and it was actually um, a lot of fun. Like there was a lot of stuff going on, a lot of bulk uh, odor hides that a lot of people don't get used to or don't get to do. Um, and so when you're in the region, your regional people set up training and they do a lot of stuff like that with the scenario yes. based stuff. Yes. So um, if you think of certification as an event that happens once a year, that you really have, to, everybody has to do that. After that, it's all about doing street scenarios or advancement type training uh, to get everybody in a, in a place where they should be and show them how to maintain that and do that. And that goes as an ongoing process all year long. Uh, so it depends on the area you're from. Uh, some people are like Minnesota, where I'm from, they, they do, they do a lot of tracks because there's a lot of open area they do. And then they're doing just the stuff in the city, you know, like this, the searches, um, uh, in whatever, uh, taught in those searches are how air moves in a building. So, you know, why your dog is barking at a blank wall and you understand what that's all about. And the same goes for uh, the wind and air movement in a track. So all, everything is being taught, not only how the dog is tracking, but what, what the handler is seeing. Because the most important part about this is while it's good to have a good dog, uh, it's great to have a good dog, I should say. It's also the handler has to make the decisions like you were saying in your exercises. It's so true. When a handler gets to a situation, he has to have enough confidence in his dog's ability to go out and do what he has to do in a real deployment. And they only get that during training because training develops the thought process where the handler can see what the dog is capable of in many different environments. So he knows how to react when he actually gets on the street and he can make good decisions because deployments are where bad decisions are made oftentimes. <laughs> We had a, uh, one of my dogs, one of the torchlight dogs, uh, one of my handlers down in Louisiana, <clears throat> what, four nights ago, uh, got called to a naked dude who was holding a family hostage with a knife. And I'm surprised he didn't get shot in Louisiana, but he got lucky. A uh, naked dude holding a family hostage in their house with a knife. Um, my handler shows up with another deputy. And he's been a deputy for 15 years, if I remember right. So he texted me early at like two o'clock in the morning after everything happened. He said, you know, this is the worst fight I've been in in 15 years as a police officer. I was like, God dang. All right. So what happened? So he kind of tells me, he kind of runs through the, the whole thing that happened. Um, they ended up tasing this dude seven times and it was not happening. Uh, he, he was, he was eating it like a Pokemon. And uh, so uh, the handler retrieves a dog from the car and sends the dog. And in, in hindsight, he says, you know, I should have waited because uh, one of the other deputies had a taser out and still the dog crossed the wires and ended up getting tagged. But the dog engages and stays engaged and the body cam falls off and records everything. And it was a six and a half minute fight with three deputies and one dog. And this dude was not having it. And the entire time, you know, my handler's telling me this, I'm thinking to myself, holy crap. You know, and he said, but the one thing that I knew was that that dog was not going to come off. There's a point in time when he actually removes the dog from the dude's arm so they can get a hold of him and then reapplies him to his leg. And that got his attention um, much more than anything else. But my handler tells me, you know, this is the second dog uh, from us. And he was like, dude, I, I knew that the dog was not going anywhere and that that was going to end 
that was going to end the altercation. And um, it was six, almost six and a half minutes after the reapplication uh, of them getting this guy under control. Turns out he was on PCP, which shocker, being running around naked at two o'clock in the morning and holding a family hostage. But um, he said that he said, and he came through the HRD down in um, down in Louisiana. When we were down there, and um, it was straight up an environmental exercise, and it was very much a, you know, the dog was on his own. I mean, granted, there was three dudes there, but you know the dog wasn't getting reinforcement from the guy who was biting wasn't getting reinforcement from the handler because he's had his own fight and it's what eric says he's like you got yours i got mine and the only way that that was successful is because when i selected that dog and when he came through the process before when we trained him up and while he was here for a handler school even though his experience we did ground fighting we did several things with him and they continue to maintain that and you know he's it was successful because of that and their admins were like you know and and apparently uh the dude was grabbing at one of the deputy's guns and it was definitely a situation where it could have been another outcome and the admins were like hey why didn't you just you know why why did you do that and tony's your well he's he, my handler said you know uh you know well you know i didn't really need it the, the taser wasn't working the dog was having an effect and i knew that by you know simply having the dog we were going to have you know a little bit more a little more oomph behind it and it turned out great but he said the same thing he was like the only reason we were successful is because we had trained that as a unit and we had trained that multiple times at my handler school and at hrd and i knew exactly what was going to happen and that's what i tell people when my guys get a bite i'm like do you know what was going to happen and if they say no i'm like ah I messed up somewhere, but if they say, yeah, this and this and this and this and this is going to happen because we've done all of this in training, like perfect. Then I got no problem with it, but I've been surprised sometimes in the last couple of years, not much, but I get surprised occasionally. So um, it, I, I'm glad to hear um, that, you know, the one thing that I, I do want to touch on and kind of like go down the road is during you know before 2013 i think there's only 10 states now that have a mandatory certification out of all out of every out of 50. um there's not a national certification coming that i know of there's been talk of one for 20 something years um and i mean they can't even agree on a national caliber that all law enforcement officers use a national swat standard but or a national speed limit and canines not really on top of the list so with that said, um, after Florida versus Harris, um, certifications became exceedingly important. They were important before, um, especially in states that were mandatory. But after 2013, they became almost a mandate. Um, you have to be certified. You just do. And, and I say that and I tell people that I'm like, you have to be certified. Just pick a body. Pick USPCA, pick NAPA, pick whoever, pick your state organization, but somebody has got to certify you. So um, let's talk a little bit about Florida versus Harris. I think, I hope everybody listening to this is not there has heard about it. If not, um, we'll put a link to it in the in the uh, in the show notes. But talk a little bit about what happened after that and how um, things changed for canine. Yes. Um... That, that was an interesting decision in that um, the Supreme Court decided that a, a dog basically went, or a team when certified by a bona fide agency 
um, is good to go. That's enough probable cause for you know on a search and things like that, so that they get probable cause to get warrants and different things based off of what the dog can do. Now, there has been some issues with that in that some people feel handlers feel that that's all they need now is to be certified. And the case is a little bit more interesting than just that if the dog is certified or and the handler is certified that you're good to go. When you come back and you go to court, they can actually really go after you in your training records and show that you really don't train. And maybe you didn't really find that or whatever you were supposed to be doing. And so you have to really, it makes uh, re uh, records keeping even more uh, needed because you have to justify you you have what you what you say you can do has to be backed up by your training records so basically everything that we've been talking about so far should be in somebody's training records that you trained this way that you did those things that you were I remember the first time that we had a guy with a gun and, and a hostage and they said get the dog and it's like we never practiced for that you know, we don't, we didn't know anything about that. So that was something I, I was listening to you talk and that was a great thing. But the idea that you can go out and track after it's rained and still pick up the odor, the scent, you have to show that you actually can do that, that that's something that's actually possible. And the idea that you can do narcotic searches or explosive searches, and you can find shells in a, in a, for a, in a case, you have to demonstrate a step-by-step -step process where you did that. And it's actually even more so that uh, when you have a uh, apprehension dog where you are training your dog and you're advancing your dog, in every step of the way to improve that dog's ability to go out, locate, bark, whatever, whatever the scenario is going to be or the real deployment is going to be, you, the worst deployment you could have is the one you didn't train for. And so that, that's a, a nightmare. So records are so good that, that they said that in, uh, in the case in Harris that you can come back to court and they can challenge your ability to do that. And records keeping is, that makes it even more mandatory. Yeah, in when it came out in 2013, I think all of us were like, oh, great. We don't have to worry about hit percentages. We don't have to worry about false alerts anymore and all this other stuff. And then for a year or so, everybody was like, oh, Harris is just a dope case. You don't got to worry about it. And then it started bubbling up a little bit and people were like, no, it's a records case. And I think what happened is people just kind of paraphrased or read the, like the Cliff Notes version and didn't read any of the concurring opinions or didn't read anything that went along with it. And when we started digging into it, and I think I remember the first time I came in contact with it, um, with an apprehension or with a use of force side with a dog was in 2016. And I thought, Whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait, 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 hold a second. You know, this is, this is a dope case. And then all of a sudden it's, it's not, it's a records case. And then there was questions about the viability of certifications and the viability of records. And, you know, and I'd known, you know, from the beginning, like, look, because of this, all of your records are now subpoenable. They have been more before anyway, but like now it's like super important. So, you know, 
and I think you're right. Like it's set out and, you know, cause we talk about the three prongs of, prongs of Graham all the time. And for Harris with my handlers, in fact, I had the conversation with um, my guy in handler school yesterday. I was like, Harris has two prongs. You have to be certified and you have to keep records and they got to be good and they have to be accurate. Like those are the two prongs of Harris. And you know, you have to be certified by this is what a national, this is what a, and I have a whole thing that we've written up that we give them that says, you know, it's, this is what Florida versus Harris says and, and paraphrases. And we say, look, you got two things. You got to be certified by a bona fide third party and you have to keep good records. And this is what they should include. And because everything is now subpoenable and it's all, it goes everything from obedience to detection, to tracking, to bite work, to whatever utility you are doing with this dog, then it needs to be done. So for a long time in this gap from 2000 up until i mean two weeks ago i had somebody flat out tell me i don't know why we shouldn't be expected to perform exactly how we certify and i kind of looked at the comment and i kind of made a face like i i get what you're saying but do you understand like that like if like the whole thing with us versus Jordan and some of the other cases where they're questioning a certification standard and they're asking, you know, is that, is it relevant? Like, do we, we obviously have to have it, but you know, it's not stringent enough or it doesn't encompass everything. So we have to now look at the records and if you haven't done it, then how can we have any sort of reliability that we're going to have a positive outcome for somebody's fourth amendment rights if we don't know what we're doing? So, I guess it kind of begs the question, where does USPCA and the modern certification like kind of moving post that and post some of the new cases that are coming out, uh, we have to now look at the records. And if you haven't done it, then how can we have any sort of reliability that we're going to have a positive outcome for somebody's Fourth Amendment rights if we don't know what we're doing? So I guess it kind of begs the question, where does... USPCA and the modern certification, like kind of moving post that and post some of the new cases that are coming out, uh, where does that all fit in with everything? Um, I think uh, how you're taking them from this, now I'm certified, that's the first step. Now the next step is to put that dog, give them distractions, uh, give them more uh, challenges and stuff like that. And you make mistakes during that time because you are exposing the dog to something new. Excuse me, because they learn patterns, routines, environment, all these different things is how they learn. They don't generalize that well. In other words, they don't go from point A, the sterile, the sterile uh, bite work, into advanced bite work just like that. You have to take them in advance in steps. So that's where we want. That's where we want to see people go. So you know, Florida versus Harris, obviously. There are people, and, and you kind of hit on it, that are using that as a reason to not do. They, they're skipping the records part, like you said. They're only they're using it as an excuse to only do certification training. Um, we see it at HRDs where dogs will come, and the handlers seem like good guys, and the dogs look like they're pretty good. And then we start putting them through weird scenarios, and they fall apart. And then invariably, the handler will say, "Yeah, we wanted to come here because." Our bosses only let us do certification training. Uh, we were down in Louisiana, and there was a great group of guys there from a department, and that's all they're ever allowed to do at every every training day. And the dog struggled, like struggled bad. Um, and, and so my whole thing is, 
screw screw the the Harris part and the records part. You should be trying to not get killed because your dog didn't perform. And and I've said this to at, at a lot of HRDs, and I've said it on here, um, but not you know maybe people have missed it or haven't listened. I worked a dog, my first dog, and all we really did for fourteen weeks was certification type training. Um, it was a long time, fourteen weeks to do it. I mean, there was a little bit of scenario, but not so much. I'm telling you, and I I've put I'd stake everything on this that I have more failures to engage with that dog in three years than any handler in the history of canine. I had 20 something, 23, 24, 25 a year for three years. And they made me keep working this dog because they didn't want to um, pay for a new dog, but all we do is certification type training. So it's really hits home with me when I, when I hear and I meet these guys that are like, yeah, dude, all we do at every training is um, 150 feet of tracking in a big U. Uh, we do a long field send. We got to do recall out. And there's so many of them. Every training, that's all they do. And it's just it's just like the guys that at training, all they do is dope. Like they show up and work the dope because their dogs are good at it. Yes. And they work the dope. And then they, <clears throat> I've got a doctor's appointment or I've got uh, a court, um, you know, whatever. And then they don't want to do the stuff that comes in the afternoon. Um, so USPCA going forward is a, is a piece of the puzzle. Um, is, your, is it your intentions to maybe can think about some adding some things or changing some things in certification or just kind of seeing how things play out? Oh, I think we've seen how things play out. I, I think that there's a, there's a real big disconnect between the certification and real world deployments. And that piece is training. And so how do we get handlers to do, um, how do we get handlers to understand that, uh, that you also learn by training? You see how your dog reacts in different environments, different challenges. You then understand that your dog might react the same way in a real world deployment. So you get a feel of how it goes because you're the one that you are the most important person on the field. Uh, you are the motivator for all training. You are the motivator in how the canine works in a deployment. So when it happens, you have to be able to make a decision to reel the long line in because you now get around homes or however you're going to, excuse me, <clears throat> however you're going to, uh, you know, run your dogs in an environment where there are innocent people around. So you have to understand all the things about your dog and how he reacts to everything so that you are able to make those intelligent decisions because the, I can't tell you how many times I've interviewed somebody or in an expert witness case where they had no clue about what they, the dog is just tracking. It didn't matter that they started in an open field and they ended up in a, in a, in a residential area with the line out 30 feet. And they the dog gives a behavior change. They because they train in a sterile environment when the dog gives a behavior change in the real world, they think they got the guy just like they do in practice. You have to expose to people or expose dogs to different environments in training. Uh, and that means you have to pick parts of the city or parts of the area where you work and run training in those areas. So as far as the USPCA, I think I'd like to see some changes uh, in 
in how we do things, um, as far as the certification part of it, get a little more real, but also we have this thing called COVID. And so we're trying to get through that, but uh, we have, um, we have many things happening. So um, not, it's not always the handler that's wrong in cases when it gets, when it goes bad. So sometimes it's a bad policy. Sometimes it's supervision. If you can think that a judge would not know about how dogs really learn, it's the same with your supervisors, your administrators. They may not understand it either because nobody is trained or gets prepared for what a dog can do as they're advancing in the police department. So it's, it's one about information all the way around and training time now with the COVID because there is a Canton, I think it is, about a court case from Canton about training. Yes. So, yep. so you have to, you can't say, now I need you to work, now I need you to do this and not allow the training because now you're opening yourself into another whole world of a lawsuit uh, kind of thing. So it's, it's a real tough time right now for police departments. Um, but we, we need, we need to advance everybody. If you take away the certifications from everybody that's that gives certifications, we are all in the same boat trying to make our dogs better. So that's what we got to concentrate on now. So in that vein, um, you know, you'd have to be living on not, you'd have to be living not in the United States. No, that 2020 has been an interesting year, um, aside from COVID, uh, but for law enforcement, um, we've had some stuff up in your neck of the woods, um, the George Floyd um, protest and incident. We've had some stuff across the country, and there's been a large shift um, in uh, how how law enforcement is perceived and in, in, is represented in, and talked about in the media. Um, canine is not immune to that um there's been some fairly large um publications published some articles one was an op-ed um when eric and i were in yeah i don't remember where we were but we, i talked about it a little bit i didn't mention it by name because the author refused to even like even come on and even talk to me um and then there was one that from the similar publication that you were in um you were talked about or you were quoted in that article as well um, talking about it. and there's a large um, publication in the south that is talking about canine um, you know and then there's some issues in a mountain state um, that's happened recently um, kind of revolving around some deployment issues to some other things so in that in the way that that is being presented so I, I just want to also kind of like clear the air here I, I reached out to both reporters from one of those publications and then two other ones from other ones. Um, three of the four responded to me and three of the four said that they were not interested in having an intelligent conversation about what they wrote. Um, I tactfully pointed out that they cherry picked data and then it was pretty much a clear cut case of confirmation bias and that their comments and the portrayal was ignorant of case law and how the industry as a whole does things, um, which I don't know if it was received or not, I don't really care because it's true. 
but um the fourth email was not even responded to and that was the one that you the article that you were in um she didn't even bother responding uh i gave her the opportunity and they just kind of blew it off so it is responded to me yeah well and then the other guy the guy the guy that was quoted in the article with you who is from michigan also responded to me and that was not the best uh back and forth either um i i i really tend to think i gave the guy the benefit of the doubt in the article it sounded like he was uh throwing a lot of people under the bus um and i told him that and he agreed that his comments were and then you know i basically said this is what you were quoted as saying and he said yeah that's accurate and if it feels like i'm throwing it under the bus then you know i i i wholeheartedly disagreed with the way that he portrayed um a lot of things and i think his while well respected in our industry because of the work he's done he he kind of went off on a direction that i don't necessarily think is true and some of the comments he made to me in email were very um telling in effect in 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 effect about how he views certain things and it does revolve around certifications and i pointed that out to him and he was like you know you're right um and i didn't think about it that way but you know what does what do we uh, as an industry what do you think we as an industry being like the director of uspca you know the largest certifying body in the country what do we as an industry need to do to kind of combat the way that um canada is being portrayed because right now how they're how it's being portrayed is out of control dogs that are vicious and just frankly fucking people up left and right and we know like the three of us sitting here we know that that's not true um so how do we combat that as an industry well that's an interesting question because i i know who you're talking about and i've responded also to the one of the reporters and got kind of an interesting response so i'm I have to do my own uh, stuff now to find the facts. Um, but what's happening, I think, is that, um, and I'm not exactly sure, but some people feel that because you have lots of collars on your dog and you're using some other equipment, that that means you do not have control of your dog that you have to have that. This is what's relayed to me. Yeah. So, um, and I know that's exactly what you're talking, that you were just talking about. So that's I know one that, of them. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. So um, what it, it, it gives the impression that you need to have all of these things. And I've been approached twice now about your dog should be the same on the street as he's in, as he is in the certification. And I'm thinking, you don't know, do you? And it's kind of like, we have to, we're, we're going to have to pick that up a little bit. We're going to have to run more exercises, more, more thoughtful things with canine handlers, more informational things. So they understand that they, they need to do some things to make themselves better. Now, when it comes to all the collars and things like that, I'm not exactly sure why that is. I was down south once years ago, and I said, "My guy says my dog has never had, never came off of a bike." And I said, "Really?" He, I says, "Well, go go get your dog and put put everything on him that you have when you go to work." And he came out with all those collars, and I said, "Why do you have those collars?" 
He says, because I got I have to be able to get him off the bike. I says, do you ever practice getting him off a bike? He goes, no. And so that's part of the issue. So there's a lot of things that are happening there that if you are, so there are companies that have helped pick up the training slack. We can go there for just a second in the United States that are pushing out dogs pretty fast. Don't know exactly whether they're good dogs or they're bad dogs, but let's just say that canine handlers coming into canine now are maybe different than they were back when everybody got 14 weeks. And so and I'm a 14 week guy, we get 14 week classes. They still have 14 week classes in St. Paul. So the information that they need to have to, to be able to do this is needed. But now you put this person out in the middle of nowhere and he has no one to help him train. So now he not only has to learn how to train, but he should, he better have the right dog for him. You know, and so that kind of a thing happens. Um, it's it's uh, an interesting thing. I think we're going to take this up. I know we're going to do, as soon as the COVID thing goes, we're going to start a lot of training. It's all about uh, realistic scenario-based training or fixing some of the issues that has have come up with this non-training part of COVID or the lack of really good training that's been should be going on in a normal dog's career. So it's it's about getting everything right. We have to do it in 2021. We're hoping that by next April, May, that it's gonna be good to go. I'm not sure it will be, but we're, that's what we're planning. Uh, and we're trying to get some seminars and things going up and, and we're, we, are actually going to do hands-on training. So we are going to get down there with the guys and present scenario things and talk to them, walk them through the problems, make them understand. Sometimes, you know, when you're you're a trainer and you you have a guy that doesn't get it about tracking and that you got to reel the leash in when you get into shrubs, you just have to run a track through the shrubs and let them figure it out. That that's the way it is. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> so, but Overall, it's it's a real tense time right now because um, this is. It, I don't know the cases in general out of the places that you talked about, and I understand where they are from. So I, I'm really not going to comment about if it if it's this person's fault or that person's fault. I have all of the publications that you talked about sitting on my desk right now, right here. So I'm reading them. I'm looking at them. I'm trying to understand what people are looking for that are actually. Uh, putting these all together. They're pretty sensationalized uh, art, uh, videos and pictures. I understand that I get that. So maybe it's an educational process on our end, but we have to do something about it. So it's a good thing that it's you and Ted that respond to these people because all <laughs> my responses are three words, eat a dick. <laughs> every one of those people, uh, eat a dick. I was, I was semi-professional. Well, I was professional in the emails. Like I, I know, I that's what I'm a... saying. Not, that's not my thing. <laughs> Eric, Eric doesn't do professional. Um, no, I, I was professional. I was like, you know, here's what it looks like, and here's what it sounds like, and I want to give you an opportunity to, you know, not make it sound like that. And they <laughs> said, oh, no, that's it. I'm like, oh, okay, well. <laughs> I mean, if that's what you think, then I'm, okay. I'm sorry you feel that way, but <laughs> that that's where we're at. So, uh, you know, because um, when those articles came out, I got, uh, I woke up 
on that Sunday afternoon, the most recent one. And my phone had like 900 missed text messages and phone calls. They're like, have you read this? I'm like, what the fuck? No. So I went and read it. I'm like, Oh God. So yeah, it's uh it's an interesting time. And I think you're right. And, um, you know, forever we have, you know, we start out every HRD by saying, you know, look, um, the second slide of this of the PowerPoint. If you're a Patreon member, you've read, you've seen, or if you've been to an HR, you've seen it. Uh, I say, you know, there isn't a person in this industry that's going to tell you you should not certify of, of any note anyway. Um, even us, like Eric and I and Ray and everybody involved in HRD, we're like, you have to certify. I mean, it's a mandate now, especially after 2013. Even before that, we were like, you know, you, know, you need to. And, you know, courts love it, so do it. And, um, but where we have really sort of like bridged the gap is now the records and deployments and saying, look, um, you know, what you're certified to do versus what you're asked to do are not necessarily the same things all the time. Like you said, you know, taking from being sterile to the non-sterile environment of deployment, uh, like story I told about my handler having to fight with that PCP zombie the other day. I mean, that is not in any certification, but it is, a combination of a couple scenarios we do at HRD. And, you know, he, he told me that he was like, you know, straight up just like X, Y, and Z. And because combined, I'm like, oh, God dang, it's stressful as shit. But, you know, he knew that the dog was going to do it. But had he only done the basic minimum and just checked the box, like, you know, his, you know, his admin wanted him to do, just check the box. And it's like I tell my, it's like I tell guys at HRDs and I tell my guys, like, you know, Canon in general is really small. Um, your admins most of the time will not notice you're around unless you mess something up or unless you do something really, really good. So like, let's like, if you just do your job, they're like, Oh, great. You did your job. You certified once a year, no big deal, but you mess something up and it gets really weird all of a sudden really quick. So don't be that guy. Don't set case law. I don't want to see your name in federal court. Like, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> and all I want is for you to do your job and do it well. And you're and I want your patrol sergeant or your lieutenant to be like, oh, great job. I've been overseeing you and I knew this was going to happen, which, you know, they're fucking lying. But <laughs> do your job and make your make your superiors look well, look good. And you'll have no problem. Right, Eric? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. <laughs> so anyways. <laughs> yeah. Eat a dick. That's got me in trouble before. So. Um, <laughs> Anyways, Don, uh, so when we have the guys that are kind of floundering, they don't know where to certify, they don't know kind of where they're going, they want to maybe get away from where they're at, or they just need help, how do they join USPCA? How do they reach out? Uh, it's, it's it's really easy. They uh, Our website's uh, USPCAK9.com, and everything you need to know about joining, plus we have uh, loads of information available that we want. What canine people do around the country affects all other canine people. So, we understanding that we're all in the same boat just because we certify differently or we have some different thoughts on certification. We all really want everybody to do well because it makes us all look pretty good, also. So, yeah, we have a lot of things. We have lots of things on um, our website, plus how to join, what it takes, different memberships. Uh, I talked to the national secretary. She's got so she's so busy right now with memberships. It's, she says I've never seen it this good. So that's good. I I think that's a good thing. But um, training is everything. Everything. So if you don't train, 
that is that's a problem. So you have to remember, you have to train. If you don't have somebody to train, you don't have a trainer, which is in most cases, then you need to buddy up with somebody. You need to get a group together. You need to do something. And that's all I can say about that. It's training is, it is everything. Agree. <laughs> yeah. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. We had, I have training every week with my guys. So um, for those listening, this is going to go up on Patreon the day before um, general population gets it. Um, so it'll be on videos and other commercials on workingdogradio.com. We have our t-shirts, which were, uh, I think we're done with everything now, right? We got them all out, right? Eric? Uh, yeah, I think so. We we were bringing one out a week, and then we just did a huge dump of new yeah. designs. We got I don't know, like eight new designs, dude. Yep. There, some so. pretty funny. There's a straight up trolling design on there, where I just flat out straight up trolled some uh, old school <laughs> yank and crank folks. Uh, yeah. Kind of right after my little rant the other couple episodes ago, but. Uh, couple more of our presidential series shirts that we've come up with right um uh they're pretty fun and that's a thing on our website you can get them on shirts and leggings and coffee cups and hoodies and everything got. yeah they're they're pretty awesome so um don this was awesome man uh for sure when when we got to talk last night that you would be an amazing guest um really uh really thankful for everything you've done in canine and and going to continue to do for for canine hopefully we get to do some things together and kind of help change the narrative on some things um you know i, I always talk about how uh canine even though is used the most in special operations they're always the bastard child um there's no there's no swat 501c3s that have to raise money to buy um their duty belts yet i don't see swat dudes selling t-shirts no, but yeah, here's every canine guy is self-sufficient and, and their units are having to pay because we're always the bastard children, but we're used the most. So um, really appreciate everything you've done. And um, I know it can be thankless and, and it's very selfless to be an executive director of a, of a big organization at times. And um, we just wanted to thank you for taking your time to come out here today. For oh, sure. I, I appreciate it. Anytime, guys, anytime. And I uh, did put it out to my people today about a little get together with you later on down the road. So uh, that's that's already out there. All you got to do is ask Eric. He got it this morning. <laughs> I'm sure he'll. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure I'll hear about it. Him or Ryan uh, from Vermont. Yeah, I'm not gonna mention his last name, but one of them. Well, I'm sure I'll hear about it. So <laughs> for sure. So uh, yeah, uh, we appreciate it. It's been a fantastic interview. So. For everybody listening, we got, uh, I think the next one's going to be the Christmas episode. So uh, this yeah, comes right up before. Yep. Yeah. So the next one comes out on the 23rd. So the 23rd is going to be the Christmas episode, which we'll talk about all the giveaways we're doing uh, from the previous guests from last year and the year before. So we've had, um, when you look back at who we've had, we've had some, we've had some hard, some big hitters on the show. So authors, equipment manufacturers. So we got some stuff coming out. Um, so yeah, we'll be doing that. The, I don't know. I think we're going to do like the 14 days of free canine stuff or whatever. So we're going to give a bunch of a dogs or stuff and ALM and everybody's giving stuff away. So it's going to be awesome. Uh, so hit it up. Be sure to check us out. Patreon.com. And then be sure to like us on YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube, 
Thank subscribe, you. please. If you're not watching this on YouTube, if you listen to us on iTunes or Google Play, go over to YouTube and look for Working Dog Radio. It's just youtube.workingdogradio.com. And uh, subscribe there, and you can listen to it in the background. So uh, I know some of my handlers have been doing that. So, yeah. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Somebody that's been with us since the beginning of this entire program has been Arno from ALM Equipment out in Vegas. Arno does a fantastic job making suits, tugs, and sleeves. Uh, one of our favorite things that we use at HRD is the hidden sleeve from Arno, and I've got multiple suits, and so does Travis. We use them at Kennel all the time. ALMK9Equipment.com is where you can find it. Be sure to use the discount code WDRADIO for 10% off your first order. Tripwire Operations Group, man, what a great group of guys. It's an internationally recognized leading provider of product services and training for federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies and military units. Tripwire Operations Group is an ATF licensed explosive materials manufacturer, importer, exporter, and dealer with a wide range of explosive products to offer, including custom kits. These kits are great for detection canine imprinting, and they have three different kits to choose from. The use of all three kits combined creates a complete explosive threat package for canine teams. Be sure to check them out. If you go there to pick up your explosives, they will let you blow some crap up. Check them out at tripwireops.org. Lastly, this music that you hear uh, has been graciously granted to be used by us by Brother Deeg. He's a fantastic artist out of Louisiana. Uh, guy does a magnificent job. He's been through Tulsa a couple times and I've seen him live. Be sure to hit him up at brotherdeeg.net, D-E-G-E.net, uh, or go to Apple iTunes or Spotify or wherever and download and buy CDs. Be sure to hit him up, buy some shirts and support the guy. The guy does a fantastic job and uh, he's a privateer kind of like we are. So brotherdeeg.net, D-E-G-E, hit him up. This episode and this entire series and this podcast is co-produced and co-owned by Alicia Brandt. You got your reasons, I got my wants. Still got that feeling, but I'm too old to die young now. Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother D-E-G-E.blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.